Victory at Home and Beyond, Investigators for Social Equality. There are few people of color, gender non-conforming, and or sexual orientation non-conforming who are creating Lovecraftian horror role-playing games. Most of them Lovecraft himself would have cast as villains or their own horrors in his stories. How do we create scenarios that are true to the bleak mythos vision of the universe while still telling diverse stories that represent everyone in cosmic horror? When the stars are right, we will all be equal, so let's hope we can pull it together before that happens. This panel will touch on this topic and the work that still needs to be done in our industry towards inclusion, diversity, and equality. This panel is presented in partnership with Golden Goblin Press and recorded at Necronomicon 2019. No, 91. Oh. Your mic is All right, so let's start with the sort of two prongs here. One prong is how, uh, the diversity of the creator pool and how to improve that. And the other prong is diversity within the fiction, two different super uh, interrelated things. I just wanted to set up a little bit of context before we start. Um, 
I did a little bit of number crunching, um, and, and I'm just going to look at the gaming side just for a second, but just as a for context for numbers. Um, starting with the gaming realm here, um, Call of Cthulhu, when it launched, uh, since it launched in uh, the early 80s, about 330 people have writing credits for scenarios, and of those, and there are some problems with these numbers that I'll that I talk about, but during those 40 years, I counted in an informal way 15 women, 330 names, 15 women. This is counting gendered names, which is kind of an issue. Um, there's an issue of uh, uh, visible diversity versus invisible diversity, and we know that some women have changed their names to male-sounding names to, be, uh, to help their chances of being published over those years. And, uh, and when you go to people of color, uh, you struggle to fill one hand, 330. Now again, I have a background in 330 people to make, you know, to, to figure this out for sure, but um, I don't believe the numbers would stretch dramatically on that. Um, so that's, that's the context, and, and the question is, how do we do better than that? Um, so, uh, how do we that yield? How to do better? How to, how to um, uh, the benefits of the move, moving that needle as well, and what that means for the fiction itself, which often depicts diverse people without necessarily authentic lived experience uh, in that writing. So uh, let's start with a pool of creators. Um, a common theme we had some discussions in the background, and a common theme that kept cropping up is um, how small companies have a tendency to rely on people that they know and build trust relationships with, and how, uh, or maybe they go to people who are already established in the industry. But with the context that is mentioned, that means going to a pool that's very unlikely diverse. Um, so I wanted to talk first a little bit about some efforts to move that needle, and when I wanted to call on you and ask about uh, your experience recently with some success in uh, encouraging more diverse creators for film festivals to submit for film festivals. What were your what was your experience with the challenges there? Um. So I, in addition to running the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, we also started Portland Horror Film Festival in Portland in 2016. And um, at the, around the same time, we became aware of the Women in Horror Month um, project, where February is also Women in Horror Month. And so we started doing free submissions for women directors during the month of February to try to encourage more, A, more, just more submissions in general, and B, more submissions by women filmmakers, because they, they have a different, visual vocabulary, we have a different approach to our storytelling. And it was important to me that that be represented on the screen, well, to, to both of us. But um, before, prior, the year prior to that, um, the submissions, I think I, maybe 10% of the films were a woman director's name. And some of Film Freeway's um, submission process is that you can, as, a, as the submitter, designate whether you're male or female or leave it blank. And so we were kind of going by what people said they were and then by their name or their picture, like the director's picture sometimes you could see. And yeah, it was like 10%, we're like, this is, this is pitiful. <laughs> and so after the next year when we did the Women in Horror Month, it bumped up, I think, to maybe 25%. And um, the year, we've been doing that for three years, so 
we're now hovering around 30%. 30% of the directors are women. And we're noticing that a lot more films have women involved as screenwriters and production um, producers. A lot of more films are having um, producers, but when you have a director's name that's a man and a woman producer, the director gets the attention, especially during Q&As. They're the one who is standing up to show their vision on the screen. Um, and so I really kind of push to get more like 50-50 because I look at our audience and the audience that attends is like 50-50, maybe 55 women, 45 men. Like it's a lot of women dragging their boyfriends to the horror film festival, which I am amused by. Um, but the interesting thing for me is that our jury doesn't know and like they don't see any of this stuff. It's all kind of behind the scenes. And when we are making our film selections, the same ratio kind of plays out. It's not like we're selecting all the women's films that have been submitted and all, like none of the men's, but it's about 30%. And it's interesting to me that how, how that plays out. So Can I interrupt for a second Please. to ask a question? I just today <clears throat> became aware of a film, I think it was made in 2015, called Innsmouth. Uh-huh. Are you aware of this film? We played it last night. <laughs> oh, well, so Is he Lee? Yeah. And I had never, it's been around for years, and I had never yeah. even heard of it. We and played it at the festival. See, but when I go to the festival, <laughs> I never get a chance to see any movies. <laughs> but yeah, woman director, yeah. she always submits stuff for um, the Women in Horror Month. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing it, because it looked yeah. really interesting. And good. It is very interesting. There's practical effects yeah. in it. There's an eye coming out of the body part. <laughs> it sound we played, we played it in the after dark block, so just let, that, let your imagination run wild with that. But it is hard to know um, because we, we do actually try to reach out to directors that we know are doing things in the horror genre to try to get them to submit because even though we're like, hey, it's free women, not necessarily people don't necessarily know about us. And that's one of the things that we struggle with, is like, how do we get more visibility, and how do we get the word out that like, hey, this film festival really wants to have kind of an equal number of, equal number of directors represented in their film programming, so submit to them. Is the visibility what's working, or what is working to move this needle? Um, well, every February there's a lot of, um, prominent female independent filmmakers that are kind of pushing the, the WIH hashtag. And that kind of helps because when you use that, people search on it. Um, but it's mostly word of mouth. We've just been kind of building our mailing list of filmmakers and asking them to share the information with their friends that are filmmakers to try to kind of get it, get a, an exponential number of um, information dissemination happening. And so far, it's been slow. <laughs> um, I mean, from the very start to now, it seems like it's, there's been a lot of growth, but like, I, there's definitely room for more. It's not at the level it should be by any means. I think room for more might be a coda today. <laughs> um, Jeff, you were part of an effort in the gaming side to actually actively recruit uh, and expand the tent for a project called uh, Your Sharp Little Needles. Could you talk a little bit about how that works? The Any Award winning. Any Award winning. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, hi. Um, I'm Jeff Muller, and just a a lot of people probably don't know me. Um, I'm, I'm up here for a number of reasons. Um, first, I am neurotypical. 
I have Tourette's syndrome, and it um, really gets in my way. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, some of those are people who have uh, ridden in a car with me for five hours recently can attest to that. I'm from New York. I barely noticed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, 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 part of what I do is I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the uh, board of the Tourette's uh, syndrome, uh, the Tourette's Society of America. And I teach classes and generally outreach and try to help people um, cope with um, dealing with uh, children in particular who have Tourette's syndrome. Um, second, I am a, another reason I'm up here is because I'm a human resources attorney <laughs> in my professional life. In particular, I specialize in immigration law. So yeah, my life is a living hell right now. And finally, I am, I do, my hobby is that I, I do write and edit for Call of Cthulhu and um, a couple, and recently um, we, when I was with Stygian Fox, we put out a, a book called Fear Sharp Little Needles. And the idea, one of the ideas initially behind the book was that we wanted to include as many people as we possibly could, not only established authors, but new authors, diverse authors. Um, the company is um, owned and run by uh, Steph McAuley, who is a trans woman. And when we initially had the idea for the book, um, it was going to be five or six. Um, <laughs> yeah, five or the Oscar Snickers, because he knows. Um, it was going to be five or six short 3,000-word templated <coughs> one-night um, scenarios and it turned into 30. And the reason that it turned into 30 is because during the process, Steph and I agreed that we wanted to be as diverse as possible. The only way, here's my theme for today, the only way that you can be as diverse as possible in any sort of publishing endeavor is with open calls. Um, if you can continue to, if, you, if the same five or six people work on your book Every single time you're creating barriers, you're not knocking them down. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if your go-to writers are your gaming buddies, you're not, you're creating barriers, you're not knocking them down. Um, when we did the Fear Sharp Little Needles, um, I basically decided that I was going to email everyone I knew um, across the spectrum, across the globe, and also invite them to invite people that they knew to pitch so it wasn't limited to my 2020 tunnel vision about who I thought could write and who I didn't. And how many people did you say no to? One? Uh, no one. No one. Everyone who wanted to be in the book got in the book. book. Um, and part of the way that I accomplished that is by, I, the, the book is 3,000 word short templated scenarios so with, with the idea the, the the marriage was that if I had a new writer who would need a lot of work um, who needed mentoring who needed to be brought along but really you know showed showed talent really wanted to participate it was comparatively easy for me as an editor as the editor to deal with them I could focus on them. I didn't have to edit 10,000 words. I only had to edit three. If you use it using the template, you were able to get the idea across. And um, so we had a we had a very diverse. We had of the of the 30 scenarios, there were about 20 authors. Um, I pre before I previously was friends with maybe half of them. 
Um, there were, I made, made several, I made about seven or eight new friends through ed, the process of editing the book. So um, open calls, it, it, there's these people ask me in my professional capacity when I'm asking, how do we diversify our workforce? Open hiring. Don't just um, rely on your on your you know your manager to hire his buddy or the guy he went to college with or the guy he plays football or the guy he went to high school with or um, you know the guy he knows from his last job. Advertise, solicit, and hire openly. What is the challenges of the of the open call? Why are they not doing that? It's labor intensive. Um, it requires more work from the editor. That's that's it. Period. Um, it is, there's a, there's a very simple and easy heuristic. I, I know this person, I like this person, I, I, I've hung out with this person, um, I, this, I know this person will not, you know, will deliver, therefore it's easy to go with that person. It, it's harder, it's just, it's more, it's more, it requires more work from the publisher and more work from the editor. But you can deal with that by giving new people a little piece. Nick, I wanted to ask you, um, you've had this close-up view of the industry for, for a while now, and I wanted to ask you, the needle does seem to be moving, if you certainly look at the first couple of decades versus the, you know, the last couple of decades, really the last five years, um, the needle seems to be moving and there seems to be some effort to, to expand inclusion and representation. What is your sense of how that's going, uh, and, and also how, how do you feel about the sincerity of those efforts? Well, like you said, it's, um, it's a slow-moving needle. Um, it is starting to pick up um, with um, the current, oh, sorry about that. Um, it is starting to pick up with um, younger people and such. Um, I look around this room and there's a pretty diverse crowd. Um, I think that, um, there is a little bit of disingenuous with or disingenuous um, attitude with some of the um, larger companies. Like I've seen, um, I know that there was a book that came out that was a like uh, based on a like uh, uh, continent of Africa, but um, it wasn't didn't have anyone African American writing for it. Um, so you know, things like that. Like they do have representation in these books, but there's no actual creator behind them that has like knowledge of that background. Right. right. I, a number of us have talked about the challenges of do uh, represent in the fiction first, and then and, and then you know fail to represent authentically, uh, and then hope that that uh, opens some door to welcoming people uh, people to to the game, or uh, must you start from the foundation and and start with the, the creator pool? I would say so. I think. Um, I think we, we all are um, involved in companies that could start hiring more people. And yeah, like Jeff said, we probably need to start doing open calls and stuff like that and um, encouraging people that maybe work in um, what's called the Miskatonic Repository, which is um, Chaosium's open community content. And I see that there's actually a way more people of color and a more diverse pool working in that um, independent system and kind of more in the indie game side. And we might just have to start contacting those people directly and say, let's publish this material. That's a really good idea, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Oscar, what, what, uh, what would you like to see more of uh, in terms of moving this needle in the industry? 
Well, I thought a lot about this. Um, you know, it's hard to be uh, the Hispanic Call of Cthulhu creator. I'm like, I think I'm the probably only, or knock on, you know, don't quote me. But uh, like, what could we do to increase that pool? It, it's hard because if if I do an if I do a call for, I'm looking for Latin Hispanic authors to submit for this contest then I'm already setting myself up for criticism because I'm excluding everyone else. So if I do an open call, I may not be hitting the demographic I'm hoping to, to expand and mentor. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. And even when you do make these sincere efforts, a lot of times those groups, and no matter what they are, those groups will see it as ingenuous because they're like, oh, you know, you're, you're just looking to cash in. You're not really sincerely supporting us. Um, for the bigger publishers, and especially the bigger games like Call of Cthulhu, um, it, it seemed like a closed system for a lot of young authors. So those creative young authors who are people of color or women or LGBT, they just naturally settled into the indie games which were way more accepting, way more open. And now indie games are a huge part of our industry. They're very creative and they have all of the best women. They have all of the best LGD people. They have all the best people of color. And here I am, naively, and I spoke of this before, um, I fell in love with Call of Cthulhu before I learned that it didn't love me. Um, by the time I was hooked and I had Call of Cthulhu in my blood, I started to notice that that cat was named Man. And I'm like, oh, maybe this was the wrong thing for me to fall in love with. Um, and I, I, it's a difficult relationship that I have to work on. But I, I do love this, so I'm, I'm stuck. Um, I can't unlove the mythos. So I have to accept that maybe parts of it initially didn't love me, but I can work and push and, and, and attract people like me into loving it and creating for it. Um, so how do we target? Um, I'm actually thinking of creating an organization that we set up a mentorship program for people of color and uh, LGBT people and women to let them know that they'll be supported, they'll be welcomed, they'll be mentored. The people who know how to do this at this level will be there to teach them how to do this at this level, that the door will be open. They're not gonna be running this race uphill. Um, and we're gonna be calling it I Am Red Hook. So uh, um, we're gonna be working on that in the next year. Um, it's something that you know we're, we're really hoping to, uh, to work on. and. Yeah, you know, hopefully it will be accepted as a, a genuine effort and bear some fruit. And, you know, I'm definitely going to look at the repository people because I think these can be some of the first people we start mentoring to get them to the, the next level. Um, How much weight does the, you talk about criticisms, uh, the concern about pushback and, and uh, talking about exclusion. How much weight do those critics have in your... Your it, it's hard because I'm a, a small company. I rely on Kickstarters. I'm a licensee. Um, a lot of effort goes into launching a program, a project, and if that Kickstarter fails, I've let down a whole team of people who had their hopes set on working on this for the next year. 
So yeah, negative press and, and pushback and, and being considered disgenuine or being criticized for being political, um, it, it can hurt my business. It can hurt my efforts to, to stay in business. Because again, if you have, if this is our spring Kickstarter and we're only doing two a year, if one of those two fails, it puts us in a very difficult situation. So I have to balance between being a socially conscious Hispanic creator who wants to broaden what the mythos is with being a small business owner with artists and authors and editors and layout people and designers who are all looking to me as ringleader of this circus. And if I drop one of these balls I'm juggling, nobody gets paid. Um, so yeah, I, I drink a lot of coffee and, <laughs> and I lose a lot of sleep, but I love what I do and I try not to complain about it. I mean, I'm living the nerd dream. I thought you were going to say I drink a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to mix my 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 and my, my my uppers with my downers. So it is kind of a it's kind of a minefield. I just wanted to add to what you're saying because I mean Brian and I own Arkham Bazaar and we run the HP Lovecraft Film Festival together. And I think it's I never really thought about it until a few years ago that like I'm a woman of color running an event for. You know, in, 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 in celebration and appreciation of a figure who is a little bit problematic for somebody like me. Yeah. I, but like you, it's like I fell in love with the, the work and I can't unlove it. And I can't just be like, no, I'm not doing that. But um, it does seem like there's always uh, a lot of kind of this dance that you have to do when you're trying to talk about diversity or trying to push that forward because there's always going to be somebody that just wants to call out that. Um, like, oh, why are you doing that? Instead of having a conversation about it or approaching you behind the scenes, like, hey, you know, I was just wondering if the reason why you're doing this is this. And they always have to put it in the Facebook or, like, in a public-facing way. We, 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 like, are, okay, we are constantly open to attack. How do I address this so that, you know, we address their concern, but it also kind of diffuses the, the thing. Like, we were trying to do something good. Like, let us do something good. <laughs> To what degree do you feel the problems of the source material are a barrier to entry or a barrier for diversifying the... I think it depends on the person. Um, some people are very... Um, as soon as they find out, they're like, oh, Lovecraft is so racist, and he has all these terrible stories about immigrants and things like that. Um, like, you can't... It's hard to get past that if that's the first thing that you're introduced to. Um, if you've been introduced to the the stories and the mythology and the, the community, it's a little easier to um, decide that you're going to wrestle with the rest of that or have conversations with the rest of that. Um, so, so it's, yeah, it depends on the person, I think. Um, and it's useful to me, I think, that um, to remind ourselves that Lovecraft was, what, 47, when he, 46, when he died? And I'm 46 now, and I don't feel like a fully developed person yet. And I hope that this is not how it's going to be for the rest of my life. I hope that I'm still going to educate myself and grow and learn and change my mind about things or let other people try to change my mind about things. So I would like to think that Lovecraft would have maybe become more enlightened, especially since it seemed like a lot of the people that he corresponded with were like, hey, man, like that's not cool for you to have that, to be talking like that. And I think that's an element we need to remember as well, that the mythos isn't just Lovecraft. 
there were other people. It was a shared, created world, and that's the thing that we need to take from it and take forward, is that this is now our shared, creative world, and we can make it what we want of it. Exactly. What would you like, Lynn, what would you like to see more of done in the industry or, or you know, outreach efforts? Or what, what sort of thing would you like to see? Well, I think visibility is a very important thing. Having different faces, different voices, so that people see those and think, oh, no, okay, I am welcome. I can be part of this. And that is a huge, you know, if you see people like you, then you are more likely to become involved. But yes, the onus is on us to go out there and find people. Now, I know we were having a chat about this beforehand. You've still got to be slightly careful because in England, affirmative action is actually illegal. So it depends very much on what your legal framework is. So if I was running a company in England and I wanted to employ more women, more people of colour, I can't put out a job advert saying, I want you. I have to be very careful with my wording because I would actually, I could be prosecuted for that. So again, it's, it's there's all these weird things you have to jump through and past. But, you know, that doesn't mean to say that I'm not going to be paying particular attention to certain people and looking for people and going out and encouraging people who come to the stand, who come to talk to me and saying, do you write? Do you play? Do you want to, to get more involved? I'm happy to mentor anybody who wants to get involved. Um, but again, it gets, you've, you've got to make, we've got to make that effort. So much of that is on our shoulders to go out there and do that because we know that women and people of colour select against themselves. They don't put in for things. Even if, as Oscar said, if you say we are particularly encouraging people from these sections of society to come forward, they still won't. So we, get, we do have to, yeah, we've just got to make that effort and really go for it and bring people in and support them once they're there, as Oscar said. You can't just bring someone in and then just leave them to get on with it because it's a complicated thing to do and people need the support and help. Does anybody have suggestions on the how of, of, of the outreach, of how to do more than the passive, please come to the door? Um, has anyone had success in, in actual outreach, having conversations, doing searches? Uh, Andrew, anyone, to, anyone have a success story that we can... Um, I feel, I mean, we're, HPLHS is a tiny little organization and, and we, we make a lot of stuff and it's mostly me and Sean making it. Um, but for like the Dark Adventure Radio Theater series, especially starting with Massive Nyarlathotep, which Chaosium went to some pains to improve in the diversity uh, arena when they redid it. And when we decided to do an adaptation of it, we wanted to follow along and, and you know, do our adaptation with a, a more diverse cast because like like was said earlier, you know, it's it's easy to just keep working with the same people you've always worked with. We've sort of developed a, a company of actors that we know and like and it's very easy to cast them perhaps in roles that really they have no business playing. <laughs> um, so we wanted to reach out and, and and you know try to work with new people and bring in African-American actors uh, to play African-American characters. Um, we're making, you know, we're working on it. it. It's not easy because that, those aren't 
those aren't people that we have a track record with, and, and like Jeff was saying, it's labor intensive. When you start working with new people, you don't know how much help is this person going to need. This person checks these boxes, but he or she doesn't necessarily know anything about H.P. Lovecraft. He doesn't understand the world of the story. So, you know, it, it's, um, there's a lot of different factors that you have to balance, but it's worth doing the work, and it's worth putting in the time to get a better blend of voices and points of view. So we're certainly working on it, and, and um, we will continue to work on it. And Oscar talked about pushback and some responses. We've had, when we did Masks of the Arlototep, we decided, you know, a, a chaos in game is, when it's written, it's full of antagonists, but there are no heroes, because the players provide the heroes, but when you do a dramatic adaptation, you have to provide those characters. So we decided to make one of the protagonists in our version. Uh, we cast a real-life historical character, Victoria Woodhull, who was a 19th century uh, suffragist and political reformer, and she was a fascinating, fascinating person. She actually ran for president of the United States. Uh, Frederick Douglass was actually her running mate, and we made her a character in the story, and we got pushback from people who said, oh, I, I love the show, but why did you have to make this character a woman? No woman ever ran for president. Why do you have to be so social justice warrior? It's like, she was a real person. <laughs> Can, it, can I just jump? Can I just jump on that? When when we when we did Cthulhu Invictus, I did a whole section on um, how gender identity really wasn't something in the classical period; that it was completely normal to be fluid. And I'm like, yeah. And there was even a, a transgender emperor, Elagabalus. And I read in a review that was the guy was like. So I read this, and I was like, no way. And I did the research, and I'm like, oh, I'll be damned, there wasn't. Like, you know, it, it's like, even after I put it in there and researched it, they didn't want to believe yeah. that that was actually true. I'm like, no, there, yeah, there was a transgender emperor. He didn't get assassinated for being transgender. He got assassinated for a whole bunch of reasons, and he wanted other reasons than transgender, because he was, he was kind of a jerk. But um, transgender was just, you know, maybe it was like ninth down on why he got assassinated eventually. But he was, you know, he's on the books as a transgender emperor of the Roman Empire. So deal with it, you know. <laughs> Lynn, I know you're a, a bit of an oddity approach to the mess. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> what did you find? Oh, God. Okay, the, there this. were over, I think it was about 120 NPCs. 13 of them were women. Nine or 10 of them were purely there to walk on and get sacrificed. So that got changed. No. And um, and have you had uh, pushback? I know that you have. What has the pushback been like? <laughs> oh, oh yes, yes. There's been some very unhappy people. Um, but you know what? Yeah. <laughs> but the thing with Call of Cthulhu is, it's not the real world. It is a reflection of the real world, and people deserve to see themselves in the game. People forget that in the 1920s, there was a whole generation of men had been killed in the First World War in the Western Hemisphere. So there were way more women around than people think. Women have been involved in gaming from the very early days. 
Women have been involved in all elements of, I mean, Zeely Bishop, you know, she was involved in the creation of the mythos from the early days. And it's, it's this sort of blinkered viewpoint that, oh, we're just coming in now. And the whole point is we're not. We've always been here. You've just chosen not to see us. We're just reminding you that we're here and we are not going to go away because this is our mythos too. One of the, one of the characters in, in Mad Science, again, we had to add some who weren't there, but one of the characters in Mad Science is Dr. Louise Pierce, who is a completely real medical specialist who helped solve sleeping sickness in Africa, in the Belgian Congo in the 1920s. She's a real person. She was there, and she, you know, she has a very brief part now in Mad Science, but it's just acknowledging that history isn't what you think it was and uh, pay more attention. It's a lot more interesting than you think. <laughs> the, the thing that I hate the most is that we keep being accused of historical inaccuracy <laughs> by people that don't fucking <laughs> They only focus on the cis white male version, his story, when there's many different stories that need to be told. You mean people read something on the internet and believe it? <laughs> It, 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 if, if, if a history doesn't serve a person's narrow, often racist or misogynistic narrative, they immediately say it's inaccurate before they ever check it. So for us who are doing due diligence, because we know if we get it wrong, we're going to get emails and we're going to get blasted on social media, so we're really careful about getting it wrong. Um, we constantly, you know, we've, we've done the research and we're constantly told that we're wrong and we just have to sit back and like, yeah, well, maybe you want to read a book, pal, um, because, because we're not. We were real careful before we said anything. Uh, yeah. Right. This, and there's the argument that there's, uh, you know, it's, it is historically accurate that the history turns out to have a lot of different people in it because it's history. Um, and then there's the uh, question of whether... Uh, it's okay to not be historically accurate in the service of diversifying and bringing, in the game especially, bringing people to the table, um, or bending, or, you know, um, you know, it's a fictional world, right? So Right, you're okay with monsters, but you're not okay with a woman doing a thing? It's like, what? <laughs> and there's also the notion of, uh, so go ahead. I think that you, you don't really have to check that you don't really have to change the history, you just have to look closely at it. Mm -hmm. I think women and people of color and minorities have been part of every major step forward in history. They're just not recorded. They're just not part of the narrative. They've been buried. They've been buried. Um, you know, they, they talk about, oh, Puerto Ricans aren't really Americans. You know, we fought in every world. We fought in every war for this country since World War One. You know, we've bled and died. I have a uncle, I have a great uncle that died on, you know, Omaha Beach. And they said that we're not really Americans. I'm thinking, since 1911, every Puerto Rican ever has been an American citizen. When did your immigrant ancestors get here, pal? But, and again, you know, th there, are, there are women who disguise totally themselves. World War II, if I remember yeah. correctly. There, there are women who've disguised themselves as soldiers, who disguise themselves as men and joined the Continental Army. More than one. Um, so you don't have to bend the history. You just have to take a close look because there was representation throughout the entire thing. It's just all the really cool women scientists were, you know, their, their discoveries were claimed by men. 
Um, all the really good, you know, minority war heroes, they weren't given parades. They died in poverty, but they were there and they mattered. And it's up to us as storytellers to tell their stories so that the narrative going forward is more inclusive. But the history was always inclusive. The people who recorded it, recorded it to edit us out. I'm sorry. Yeah. Very and there is a fantastic... <laughs> One of my favourites is the Indian emperor that had, um, and his entire bodyguard was women. Oh, so they were archers and swordswomen, uh, because he didn't trust the guys, but he knew the women would kick ass. So, and the other thing that uh, a number of people talked about is the objection uh, of uh, don't bring politics into politics. Oh, goody. <laughs> in service of media. And that brings us to, um, let's talk about uh, the, the project uh, in Darkness and what, what that was about, why, what was the impetus there? Once upon a time, some very angry immigration lawyer woke up one morning <laughs> and decided that he was going to write a scenario set in an uh, immigrant detention camp along the southern border um, in 2019. Um, he was talked out of it by um, a friend of his who um, decided it would be more interesting to explore it from a historical perspective. So there is a book that I have just finishing, finished editing called An Inner Darkness, which um, explore, is all, there are all scenarios that are set in the 1920s and 30s and deal with, um, they're all mythos stories, but the, the backdrop of each of them is a particular um, social issue. We have several of the authors actually here or in the audience. Um, but um, mine, for example, I, I like to tell, I like to t talk about this a little bit. Um, I, I got out a couple, of, bought a couple of books from Amazon and discovered that um, what I had heard once was actually true, that in um, 1931, Los Angeles, there was a mass roundup of, um, of uh, Hispanic, uh, people of Hispanic ethnicity and mass deportations. It went over all across the summer of 1931. And, um, history kind of repeating itself. Um, one, one thing that they would be, and they were vigilantes, there were labor unions, in, unions involved, the LAPD was involved. Um, there were federal officials turning a blind eye to the whole thing. But um, one of the um, things that they would do is they would take people, and if they claimed to be um, U.S. citizens um, and couldn't produce paperwork immediately, or if they, um, or if they couldn't produce paperwork at all, or they suggested that they had some other um, basis to uh, be lawfully in the United States, they would simply incarcerate them, um, in, in historically in the L.A. County Jail with the uh, with the rapists and murderers and criminals awaiting trial. Um, until they got around to having their, their hearing before the uh, immigration uh, the immigration adjudicator. Um, and um, often they'd give up because they didn't want to be in jail anymore. Um, the LA County Jail in 1931 was not a nice place. Um, I spend a lot of time in my scenario. It gets a whole box <laughs> about talking about what a, uh, what a nice place it was, but there are, the interesting thing is there were some there are historical antecedents to it. Um, in the uh, in the 19 teens in Los Angeles, um, the uh, LAPD had a, what they perceived to be a problem with 
um, seasonal workers, um, often Caucasian seasonal workers, but uh, also from, uh, from Mexico, um, staying over the winter when they weren't welcome in the downtown. The, the, the hobo culture. The hobo culture. And um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the historical antecedent was that the, uh, the, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department um, would um, arrest them, convict them for vagrancy, sentence them to 120 days in jail, which was the period of time between the time they'd show up after the uh, harvest was over until spring when they would, be, when they would normally leave um, Los Angeles anyway for work, and um, put them to work. Um, first, they had them build a, a, uh, first they had them build their own stockade um, in, the, um, in, the, in what is now outside of Dodger Stadium. Um, and after they were done with that, they started paving the roads. Um, so there are, there are lots of, there are lots, if you read the history, um, and if you read the history, um, you'll find that there are plenty of horrible things that you can use as a, as a springboard for, um, you know, let's put somebody a little better and see if they can't affect the situation a little bit. What, what are some of the other oh, topics we cover? Um, in just I had, brief. <laughs> I had, um, I've been called a lot of things in my life um, because of my Tourette's. I've been called twitchy, spaz, you name it. Um, but um, I had never been called a racist um, until, um, I, until we were uh, kickstarting uh, an inner darkness. One of the um, one of our authors um, is writing a, a, a wrote a scenario set against the uh, the Tulsa massacre of 1921, and that, this is a, a historical event that um, doesn't receive a great deal of attention. But um, in 1921, Tulsa, um, it was it's an oil boom town at the time. Um, there are there is a something there is a district called Black Wall Street. Um, there were a great many affluent um, African-Americans who had set up a, a very uh, successful and uh, wealthy um, district within Tulsa. And there was a, uh, there was a, a racially motivated incident involving a black man and a white woman in a department store elevator that turned into a lynch mob, that turned into a, uh, and they hate the word riot because it was actually more of a massacre, but, um, it is, um, but the basically the entire the entire black section of town was burned to the ground, um, and so we set a we're, we're setting a uh, Helen Gould, who is uh, one of the people I met doing fear sharp little needles, um, wrote a wrote a scenario set in the aftermath of the uh, 1921 Tulsa massacre. So the black city is part of the city burned to the ground. People are scraping themselves up and. Um, Somebody comes along to quote finish the job. That's kind of the setup of the thing. But I, as we were kickstarting this, um, a, 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 a YouTube pundit um, suggested that um, I was uh, I, I, that Helen was racist and so was I on account of choosing to write about this obviously divisive and hugely political topic. So I, I, I can I can add that to my resume now. <laughs> You've been called a racist. Yeah, I could you know I could I could check that box off, but um, there are um, yeah um, they, I, I was um, I was flabbergasted and it took me a while to kind of 
pull it together, but guess what? The book is edited and it's coming out. <laughs> we're in art. We're, we're, we're getting art and maps for it. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's happening, people. Um, yeah, a lot of the other topics so we do, uh, there's a scenario that centers on uh, rape and abortion in the 20s. There's one that's a fascinating one about the KKK takeover of Maine, the political landscape in Maine. Uh, there's one, a great actually one. Actually happened. Actually happened. Uh, there's a great one set in a cosmetic company that, uh, you know, there's, there's very little regulation on what goes into the cosmetics and how the workers are treated. And in our scenario, it both sucks. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a lot going on. Drink uh, more radium; it's good. Drink, for yeah. You. <laughs> um, so yeah, we did the whole book of scenarios with different, you know, the backdrop, and oh, we got hell for it. But we were like, yeah, we're doing it anyway. Andrew, I know you had some thoughts about the idea of taking don't get don't put politics in my radio play yeah. slash film slash. I'm in a depressed. Depressed. Deep. I feel sorry. Uh, let me apologize in advance. The other, this happened a week or two ago, I guess. I I keep my mouth shut 99.99% of the time in order to stay neutral and not bring politics into things. But every once in a while, I like something that I like, and I got a private message on Twitter from a member of the HPLHS saying, "I would be very grateful if you would not bring politics." And, and it, it spun me around for a solid, it made me so goddamn angry that I can't fucking say what I think <laughs> in my own goddamn Twitter feed, you know, and it's, it's truly chilling. It's truly chilling. And I, I know this guy. I, I've met this, the guy who sent me the message is a perfectly nice guy. I don't think he meant it in a chilling way. But it really, really bugged me, and I wrestled, I, I still haven't responded to him directly, and I don't expect I ever will. Uh, you um, might be doing that now. Uh, no, I'm pretty sure he's not here. <laughs> um, it, it is being recorded. You no, know, this was in the HPLHS, and it wasn't even a, I, I didn't even, I didn't retweet it, I didn't tweet, I just liked it. I liked a tweet that somebody else had written. But I don't know how Twitter works. I guess if you like something, then people who follow you see that you like it. And he didn't like that I liked this thing. And he thought he should go out of the way to tell me that I shouldn't like the thing I liked. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the uh, dramatic yeah, that's, style. Is <laughs> that's kind of how I felt. But, you know, I'm not going to go around. You know, it's just you can't win. In a Twitter situation like that, you cannot win. So... I just didn't respond, and I don't expect to respond, but it is, it's not the first time that kind of thing has happened, and it, it sure stirred up a lot of things that I'm really angry about all the time. <laughs> did, the chair, did the chair care to recognize Mr. Glancy for a moment? I just want to say that, that there are people who say these things are political. But um, as, a, as a Hispanic man who is the father of a proud, beautiful gay man, what you call political could be fucking survival for some of us. Um, you know, there are people who have their life threatened because they're standing in the wrong place having a barbecue and somebody makes a phone call. Yeah. 
Um, so when people say, why do these things need to be political? These are people who have no idea what political really means. Political could mean some airy-fairy voting thing and, and some Fox News demographic and a graph. Political for other people means survival. means wondering if, if my child is going to be attacked is wondering if my daughter is going to be sexually assaulted because the guy who does it has good swim, swim team times and he's not even going to be arrested. Um, you know, these are, are, are issues of, of survival for a lot of people. Um, and to have it reduced to the label of don't be political is incredibly insulting. And I, and I know what, you know... One of the things that crossed, you know, that old, if you don't like this country, then leave. Why doesn't that work both ways? <laughs> if you don't like this country, then leave. Move to Russia. Move to Saudi Arabia, someplace more in line with what you sort North, of think. North Korea. <laughs> it also kind of. Um... Those crazy places are incredibly difficult to immigrate to. <laughs> 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 and, Art is always political. Storytelling is always been political because it, uh, it is our way of processing the world, and our world is political. So to to say, please don't put politics into this thing, is to to say like, you do you want some like stripped down like lowest common denominator, thoughtless, brainless, mindless enterta- entertainment? I mean. If so, like here's some here's some heroin. <laughs> here, here, here's a book of fart jokes. <laughs> what they want is something that flatters their own self. Yeah. That want. makes them feel comfortable, makes yeah. them feel happy and safe and comfortable. Where, and again, that's a, coming from a deep place of privilege because their comfort and and um, happy places somebody else's like nightmare. Yeah. yeah, these are people who never feared for their life during a traffic stop. Yeah. You talked about something that was very interesting, and, and I, I hadn't followed up. You mentioned that there was what I think you called a palpable difference in, in, in the stories that women, or the, the approach of women to horror. Um, can you expand on that? What, what the... um, well, for example, one of the films that we played at Point of Horror was submitted by a woman. It was called uh, Three, Three Days. And it's about a woman who's camping. And she wakes up in the middle of the night, she hears a sound, and she's talking, and you see her two friends talking back to her, because she's going through this whole process of like, do I look outside the tent? Do I, am I just being stupid? Am I being silly? And her friends are like, no, like, it's okay. Like, everything's gonna be okay. Did you hear that? And it goes along, and you realize her friends are not actually there with her. It's her talking um, to herself and working through this um, whole process of like, am I being, hypersensitive and I being paranoid, which is something that women go through every single goddamn day. Walking down the street, is that guy looking at me? Did he say something to me? Did he mumble something under my breath? Is he gonna get mad because I didn't acknowledge him? It's like, these are all these little things that we have yeah. to, to- It's the geography with. of fear, fear thing, yes. isn't it? The fact that you have to be constantly yeah. alert to, am I doing something that is going to put me in danger because I haven't, reacted in the way that that person wants me to or react simply because to them. I have boobs and long hair or whatever but um, so the woman goes on to explain like I just wanted to go on a hike I wanted to feel sweat on my back I wanted to stand up on this high mountain and look across the valley and I wanted to miss my friends I wanted to come back to them and it comes back to her in the tent and you hear 
outside like a twig snap, and then you hear a man's voice going, hey lady. And it's terrifying to women, but men were also like, oh my god, like is this how you feel? Like is this how you really feel? And we're like, yeah, every day. <laughs> so like it's important for that story to be told because a man would never tell that story. They haven't had that experience. They don't have that um, frame of reference. And for us to, as human beings, come together, we need to share that. Right. So that, uh, that speaks to the benefit of uh, having diverse voices and authentic voices telling those stories. And Nick, I want to ask you uh, to expand on just the, the benefits of uh, uh, bringing in diverse creators. I want to get back to that and, and having that voice be authentic and lived um, and have that uh, plays out in the fiction. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not really involved with the fiction anymore. Yeah, right. right. Um, it is, we do need to um, expand on that at least. Um, we did come out with a book a few years ago that was all women, and we need to continue doing things like that. Um, I'm sorry, what was the question again? Well, you know what? If you had, what would you like to see uh, more of? Uh, and, and, you know, what process would you like to see done in both the fiction and, and the gaming side? I said fiction, I meant gaming too. Um, yeah, what would you like to see more happen right now uh, in companies? I'd like to see more people, well, like I said earlier, I want to see more people getting hired for um, different roles. Uh, we do need more uh, people of color artists. We usually use mainly white or European artists, and we need to work more with uh, people of color that can um, you know draw people of color mm -hmm. and without like altering the proportions to look kind of cartoonish sometimes, mm -hmm. which has happened in the past. Um, so I think that that's that's a big thing. Lynn and I have been working on trying to have more people of color in Chaos Inc. books, mm -hmm. and so when people open up the book, they can see someone that looks like them or maybe looks like a relative of theirs, and I think that that will draw more people in because we're, we're trying to be inclusive as possible. Yeah. Um, I hope it's working. I, I, it seems like I've seen more, more women and more people of color at the booth this year. Oh, really? Than the previous years. Um, yeah. The uh, first four sales, three of them were women. Mm -hmm. um, so it was very encouraging to see that. Um, yeah, I, I, like I said, it's getting better. But um, hopefully we can speed up the process by doing open calls and uh, encouraging people to submit and to um, get into the industry. Is anyone else seeing signs of progress in that way, at the gaming table or in the crowds or uh, you know, at the booth? Yeah. Um, I was recently doing a playtest for something we've got coming out shortly. Um, and for the first time ever, my entire playtest group was women. Oh, that must have been a great game. It was great. They're, they're, it they're was smarter. They're better absolutely players. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> if I get a table of all guys, I'm like, oh, God. But the really interesting thing is with having done a lot of LARP, it's, it's this weird sort of segregation between strands of gaming. Um, there have always been a lot of women in LARPing. And as we said, in indie gaming, it's kind of mainstream tabletop that there hasn't been. But that, it is improving steadily. I mean, I went to my first Gen Con in 94 and had a bit of a break and then came back. And just the number of women and people of colour, yeah, it is improving. And I think part of that is potentially because we, we are now intergenerational gamers. 
we have the first generation on our bringing their children and their grandchildren in and they are bringing in their friends and their friends' friends and that is widening the pool, that is bringing in the different voices. But we do, uh, and, and again, it's, it's the whole um, having women GMs, having um, GMs who are people of colour, that shows that, you know, that encourages people to come to the table because they're going to be welcome. It's not just straight white dude staring at me who has no idea of my lived experience kind of thing. So, you know, encouraging people to run games is, is a massive thing that, you know, look like you. So you are welcome at my table because I know where you're coming from. I know in uh, some of the conversations that the tone was sometimes of uh, wanting to know, like, with the, how do we do this? Yes. And I'm wondering if the panelists have questions for each other about uh, what has worked, or if you want to ask uh, about success stories or uh, anything, uh, challenges that you faced. I'll throw it out there. I think we've, I think we've covered it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, question. No, uh, yeah, I was just—I was pointing because that gentleman over there uh, was at the morning panel, and he came over. He says, "I noticed your last name. Are you Hispanic?" And I'm like, "Well, yes." And he goes, "Well, I'm Hispanic too." And it was like two unicorns met. <laughs> like this was great. I've been waiting for this for like 15 years in this industry, um, and it's—it's it's a beautiful story, and it's tragically sad because it's—you know. But yeah, so I just wanted to acknowledge that I did have that moment this morning, and you don't know what that meant to me, um, but it did. It, it, uh, I was really happy to validate you and have you validate me that we're here and we're not going anywhere. And boy, do we need to bring some of you know more of our people into it. And and you know, the, the, I want to talk about the missed opportunities. Um, Hispanics are very superstitious people, um, very superstitious. <laughs> Um, we, we, we have a healthy fear and respect and a belief in the paranormal and the unknown. One of the scariest stories I ever had was my mom. I said, hey, I want to get a Ouija board. She goes, not on your fucking life. You will never have that thing on my, in my house. And I said, why, mom? Do you think it's fake? And she goes, no, it's not a good idea to draw attention to yourself. And I never forgot that, and I was never the same, and that's probably the start of me becoming a horror writer. It was chilling, and that's a perspective that all Hispanics grow up with, and Filipinos, because we're practically the same demographic. Um, yeah. Yes. Spain did a lot of damage Thank to a lot Spain. of islands. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, we, and it's pretty much the same food, too. Um, but anyway, um, it, it's a great perspective it's a really scary way to live um, you know but th that perspective like bringing that per like the much you said about a woman's perspective that it's a whole different sort of fear that men can appreciate when they view it through art and and foster understanding for like Asian cultures and 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 Hispanic cultures and different and when you see their version of the horror 
and, and their perspective and their stories, it helps you understand those groups. And because we're not diverse or as diverse as we should, we are cheating ourselves out of entire swaths of great storytelling that we may never might never experience. I mean, if it hadn't been for the Japanese mythology becoming more mainstream in Western, we wouldn't have the ring. We wouldn't have so many, you know, there, nobody tells a ghost story like the Japanese. My God, it's, it's, it's horrifying. <clears throat> I want to learn more of those stories. But how many demographics are we missing their mythology? I mean, you know, what is Indian horror folk like? I'm sure it's awesome, and I'd love to hear some of those stories. I'd love to get some of those authors writing Call of Cthulhu, because that's a horror I had, I'm dying to, to learn about. Yeah. Um, so by not being diverse, we're, we're cheating ourselves out of so many great stories. And you're also cheating yourself out of money, because the same thousand people are going to buy books by, from the same, by the same six writers. It's not going to be another thousand. Does anybody have a um, call to action as we wrap up here, call to action uh, for yourself, for each other, for the, for the, uh, the crowd, listeners. Go for it, do it. Get in touch, get yourself out there. We are here, we are waiting for you. We will come looking for you too, but you know, don't select against yourself. You have stories that you want to tell. We want Please to help you tell them. share them with us. Because it's boring hearing the same stories from the same people over and over again. By sharing your stories with us, you are enriching everyone's experience. And we will be profoundly grateful to you for that. So please don't select against yourselves. We can only hear about deep ones so often. (laughs) Some people would say never. (laughs) (laughs) They're like jello. There's always room for deep ones. There's always room for deep ones. Do you have a question uh, yes. Okay. Let's just. Oh, so, yes. I want to make sure. Okay. Does anyone have questions? Uh, we've got just about five minutes before uh, we need to wrap up. This guy's been dying to ask one all the time. Before, there's something to say about the board. Okay. Statements as I attempt to warn you on the panel, but I do yeah. actually have a question. Uh, as far as the pushback against don't make it political, don't. don't like that thing. You're, you're dragging politics into this. Uh, it's something that I've always been worried about the last few years uh, with our family here uh, in uh, enjoying the mythos and whatnot. Our founding father is most of his life, he was a pretty strict and uh, pretty blatant white supremacist. Um, and maybe he mellows towards the later part of his life where he decided that, you know, black people aren't cannibals and don't lay eggs, but, you know, that's not much of an improvement. I'm mostly worried about the idea of uh, uh, having this sort of uh, coordinated pushback that Hugo's got from some of their small right crowd, where you don't come for the tentacles, you come for the racism. Uh, you'll latch on to this in a, in a very brutal way, as a way to disrupt it, as a way to, uh, like any time uh, these kind of people show up, uh, they push other people out. You know, if you have an unmoderated forum, when nasty Nazis turn out, people start feeling out before close to the Nazi form. And I'm wondering if anyone has, has encountered anything that made them feel like uh, they were uh, uh, on <coughs> the edges of anything like that, anything remotely coordinated. Not yet, but we're working on it. <laughs> yeah, I'd be um, uh, some of the stuff on, some of the shove back on. Um, 
about inner darkness certainly made me feel that way, including on one moderated forum whose name I will refrain from mentioning. I am aware that there is an issue on a particular forum um, that um, one of my trans women friends raised. Um, again, I'm not going to name who it is, but there seems to be an infiltration of a particular game strand um, that is happening, and hopefully the moderators are becoming aware of it and are starting to stamp down on it. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I just, I, I just want to stress, I, I know you've talked about this already, but the, the importance of increasing diversity among the fans uh, of course, uh, creating material that acknowledges, uh, you know, underrepresented minorities is important too, and having diverse creators too. But uh, it's just so it's so unusual to see other minorities here, as I'm pointing out. I mean, I I, I I try to do my part. I uh, I'm lucky to believe in a diverse community up in the Boston area, so I always invite my kids' friends over for Dungeons uh, and Dragons, and then when they became old enough that it wasn't cool to play with their friend's dad. I bought some dice and the books, and now when I come to the older, I got the calls to start it, and I, you know, basically sent it to the basement once every couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows what happened? And, uh, you know, and, 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 and uh, you know, it's a very diverse community, as I said, so I'm hoping that in a generation or two this will change. But it is sad to come, and, you know, I, Obviously, yeah, I love everyone, but it would be nice to, uh, I know you can't tell that, but I am. It would be nice to see more people in my culture and other minorities uh, represented. Right. Okay, you do. And then we'll get to you in the beer. I wrote this down the question to say a question. So a lot of the discussion I've been hearing so far about scenarios that center women, people of color, people who are interested in being um, placing that in history, it necessarily involves invokes histories of violence and marginalization. So how do you, in your work, how do you all create space for people with marginalized identities to like celebrate and enjoy their identities through fiction when working off the history of the characters come from really awful violent backgrounds? Utilization of the heroic narrative. Yes, you, you don't make these people victims, you make them heroes. You you don't showcase them as weak. You you demonstrate how their struggle, how they're strong in their struggle and their conviction. Um, you show the injustice of their marginalization in your narrative. Um, and even if you can't beat Cthulhu, maybe you can at least make a dent in that. <laughs> I, I wanted to add to that, that I think that when it comes to the 20s and 30s, marginalized characters, uh, marginalized people are the people who are should be encountering the mythos because they are the edges of this ignorant society that believes itself to be the center of the universe and the last and most important areas of the world and you know part of God's majestic plan you know, for mankind. Uh, it should be marginalized characters who can't go to the authorities, who will not be believed, that they know that they are the only thing standing between destruction of society that may not even give a shit about them or may actively despise them and yet heroic thing they're going to do is they're going to stand up for this and they're going to defeat it and they're going to put the toothpaste back in the tube now no matter what it takes. Beard and then we'll get to... Uh, my uh, partner is Death and he always plays Death's character, a Death investigator. Uh, so now anytime I want to publish scenario or writing my own, I, I think put this being defeated by uh, an investigator with mobility issues 
It is Fate have just put out the Fate Accessibility Toolkit, which has been written by people with, uh, well, um, Elsa is, is deafblind. Um, so yes, companies are starting to look at that, but again, that is something we need to do a heck of a lot more work on. Well, there is um, gamers. G-A-Y-M-E-R-S. The people who run OrcaCon uh, in Seattle, they do um, a lot of work with um, gamer organization. Um, a lot of the people that are involved do the um, queries of three-sided die um, panels and things. Um, so, you know, the, there are a lot of gamers out there who are working between those two communities. If you're a designer, um, you might uh, look up uh, the internet, uh, Independent Game Designers Network, IGDNonline.com. It's, uh, it's a trade organization that I belong to, which um, um, diversity is not a requirement for membership, but um, supportive it is. say that, that everyone involved with Necronomicon has been really working hard to uh, fight the, uh, you know, the negative exclusive aspects of our, of our genre and they've been nothing but supportive of efforts like this uh, and you know I, I've, I've found it a very welcoming and encouraging place. When I came forward and said hey, I want to head up the diversity panel they were almost like oh thank god. Um, and uh, really gave you know you know wrote me like ask anyone you want whatever we can do to support you so um, yes they they at least for this con and a lot of cons I've been involved with there is a huge effort because the more people who are involved the more people are going to the cons the more successful the cons are they're in the business to make money not exclude people who want to be part of this um, so it's just good business sense honestly. <laughs> I'd like to add to that, when you ask for more diversity, it helps us as organizers to know if you have suggestions as, as to who could be a guest. Um, so if you know of, you know, women or people of color, authors, creators, artists that you think might fit, please tell us their names because we don't know everyone. Like, I don't know... I've never met you before, I don't think. I've never met you, I've never met you. So I know Nick and Oscar and Andrew, but like I don't know everyone. Because um, I'm working on, I'm usually watching films. I'm locked in a dark room watching <laughs> submissions. 
And um, I, try, I try to poke my head out every now and then to see what's going on in the word fiction community as well, because I really like to have that aspect at our festival as well. But I know I don't know very many authors, so it's super helpful if you have that um, urge to say, like, hey, I'd really like to see more diversity here, and here's five names of people that you should reach out to for next year. That's amazing for us. Like, it's super helpful. <laughs> We are out of time, over time, in fact. Um, so it's the last panel, so screw it. Yes. <laughs> I, had to, I had to wait, so. I don't think anyone's scheduled after us, so I can be a jerk. It's not, I'm not hurting anyone. There's a, yeah, okay. In any case, I think it's time to say thank you very much for coming. Thank you for your interest. Please do leave uh, positive feedback for things that you see that are positive. And if we've offended you, this panel isn't for you anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. No, I'm not. I'm not sorry. <laughs> it's never wrong to punch a Nazi. Piss off the races. We please much better people. Yes. All right. Well, yeah. Everyone, thanks for coming. Thank you. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.